Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having these geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. We do not often get behind the scenes to hear the stories of how individual faculty members became a part of Israel Bible Center. But this week, I want to change that by introducing you to Ashley Lyon. Dr. Lyon lives in the United States, teaches Hebrew at a few schools, writes articles for IBC's magazine, and participates in some of the Hot Topic seminars. She is also in process of developing a new course for us. More on that later. She has a new book that has recently been published called Reassessing Selah, which is at the core of our conversation today. You may recognize the word Selah as being nestled within some of the Psalms, and many biblical translations simply leave the word untranslated, primarily because we don't actually know what it means. Selah may indicate a break in the song, a musical notation to indicate a pause, or it may be a word that has the weight of agreement, like saying amen. It is fun to have a chance to talk with someone who spent hours upon hours upon hours scouring through ancient literature to try to uncover the intended use of this rare Hebrew word. Before we solve that mystery, however, let's find out how Dr. Lyon ended up studying Hebrew because her initial courses in university were focused on the sciences. I did a bachelor's degree in plant biology, graduated from NC State with that. Originally wanted to be a veterinarian um, and then, you know, honestly, I was a bad student. So I went to seminary and found that I had a knack for languages and I really fell in love with Hebrew. Um, And so I ended up going to seminary and then doing a PhD in England um, in Hebrew poetry. Um, getting to study a number of different texts was actually really fun and I really enjoyed it. And that's how I ended up here, basically. (laughs) There's an element of precision and measurement that is in the sciences. So when I found out that was your background, I wasn't all that surprised because I know that you are a deeply language person. I was like, oh, they actually kind (laughs) of match a little bit, but I didn't know what that trajectory was actually like for you. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of precision, like overlap between the sciences and just being a linguist in general. Yeah, there is there's a lot of precision that goes into this. There's a lot um, a different vein of thinking that um, runs through my research when it comes to, you know, the original language and trying to just determine the meaning of these rare words. And so. uh, So, yeah, I've spent many hours mulling over the Hebrew text for this stuff. So. Which makes you so valuable as part of the IBC faculty team is there's a certain amount of immersion that you have had in just the Hebrew itself, kind of looking in the dark corners, which makes it really fun. There's an interesting perspective that you bring to the team dynamics. I did want to ask first, though, about um, Hebrew poetry, because I know that is your 
love. At least that's what you've published on. And Hebrew poetry is complex to a certain extent. Um, There is no handbook from the ancient writers themselves as to how to understand Hebrew poetry and how to even describe its characteristics. So after all the studies you've done, have you found a way that you like to describe Hebrew poetry and maybe categories or are there even categories within Hebrew poetry? I don't, I, I don't really know a way to get uh, to explain it well. Um, you know, I, I like to describe it as steeped in mystery. <laughs> when you read Hebrew poetry, especially when it comes to grammar, what you learn as a Hebrew student, um, no matter if you learn it on your own or, or in a formal setting, all the rules of grammar, you have to throw out the window and you have to be an interpreter when it comes to the text. Um, We're all interpreters as we translate because we bring our own backgrounds, our own theological beliefs, everything that gets mixed together um, when it comes to translating even. And so when you delve into the deep end um, of Hebrew poetry and you have to throw out all those grammatical rules, you're left with just being a good thinker and trying to discern what the original author's intentions were, um, but also look at the connections that they use. Uh, why did they use a particular word here? And and why is this only one other occurrence of it, you know, in, in the whole of Psalms? How do these two contexts relate to one another? And so you're, you're pulling out these thematic threads. Um, so when it comes to interpretation, now there have been some really great books written on Hebrew poetry. Um, I think the person that I admired the most when it comes to their studies is Adele Berlin. She's a, a great female scholar um, who wrote on parallelism in, in Hebrew poetry. And she's the only one who I think that could be uh, onto something there. Uh, of course, other scholars have picked up on her work and have expounded on it. Um, but I really think um, her work on parallelism has been exceptionally great um, in understanding Hebrew poetry, but it is just something that's hard um, to do. So <laughs> so it's interesting that that's the way that you chose to go very purposefully headlong into very challenging text. And you're right. I think as a geographer, as someone who loves the land, the Psalms are seeped in images related to the land. And as someone who loves language and grammar and odd uses of a word, I could see how they're just all over the place in the Psalms. I could see how it's a bit enticing, but why did you end up going into the deep end? I, you know, it's funny. I just like a challenge. Um, Honestly, my personality, I get bored easily. And so I was like, what part of scripture is there some, you know, dark corner that people haven't looked into or or maybe they've written very, very seldom on? Or has there been something that's been accepted, you know, a certain way? And can I change people's minds about that? Not that I'm looking to, to, you know, change, change the meaning of scripture, not, not going that far. That would be a little heretical, I guess, of me. (laughs) Um, But um, I just wanted to shed some more light on these obscure subjects, because when it comes to Selah specifically, it had just been accepted that that's what it was. And I was like, well, I don't really understand it. So what's been written on it? And then as I started to realize that there wasn't anything, even within like the past 50 years, 
written on it really that was something that kind of piqued my my interest and so that that's why i went down that road and started realizing that there are other other words in the hebrew psalter that just aren't completely understood they're just transliterated and said hey you know this is probably what it means and that's good enough and for me that wasn't good enough and so i wanted to see if i could change that and that's that was my goal <laughs> so you went not only down the route of challenging type of text but let's yeah. find the mysterious meaning of words <laughs> that no one understands. Right, right. Just kind of giving people something else to think about. For not, I, my research on Selah was not to say, hey, this is the new hard and fast rule on how you should read it or even how you should understand it, but just to get them thinking because we live in a generation now that doesn't teach people to think and think critically. And so I wanted to give people who are avid readers of the Bible and like avid churchgoers and they just love scripture and even the scholar to think differently about this term and maybe see if there's something else that they could expound on even. And so just to get them thinking is is what I wanted them to do. So, so for people who are listening and are thinking, where is Selah found? in the Psalter. Is there a pattern that we see for the type of poetry that Selah is embedded into? Well, first, just regarding its placement, Selah is found 71 times in the Hebrew Psalter and three times in the um, book of Habakkuk. Actually, all three of those occurrences in Habakkuk are in Habakkuk chapter three. So 74 times in the to total of uh, the Hebrew Bible, there is not a particular pattern it occurs in. It's not like, hey, you have two psalms without it and then two psalms with it. Um, what I have found throughout my studies, though, is that where it is placed, there is an emphasis on a particular type of context. And so I had written about it occurring within a cycle of sin, judgment, and redemption. They are not always in that order. Sometimes Selah in a psalm will highlight, say, a judgment in a sinful context, and they play off of one another. Or they highlight, you know, the sin and salvation theme where somebody's crying out to God and they say, you know, Lord, save me. And then it's his response. Or it's just an affirmation on the psalmist part saying salvation is of the Lord. That happens a lot throughout the psalms. And so it does occur in those particular contexts, but it is not concentrated, I guess you could say, in an even pattern. That's even a way to think of it. The only peculiar thing about it within the Hebrew Psalter, it is it does not occur in book four at all. So that remains a mystery and to me. There, there are all these different theories on uh, the background of the Psalms and how they were composed. Um, and so that may have some, some bearing on it. Yeah, <laughs> we, don't, we don't know though. When you were talking about the sin and salvation, is Selah used then in the Psalms as it moves from one topic to another, it acts as the bridge or the, the uh, not maybe not a bridge, but an indicator to those who are either singing or reading out loud that we're shifting from the sin part, putting our eyes on the salvation part. Is that kind of its function? 
Yeah, I would say that that could be one function of it. Like I said, I'm not entirely sure. So this is not a hard and fast. Oh, you should look at it this way. But you're right. It, it could serve as a bridge to those two ideas or those two themes, connecting them to one another and just being as like even a marker in the text saying, hey, this is something that you should think about. This is a high point in the psalm and letting the reader or the singer, whoever, whatever they're using it for, either liturgy or literary purposes, that you should dwell on this type of thought. You should dwell on that, the sin aspect, because obviously that's a theme of the Bible, <laughs> um, our, highlighting our human sin about the judgment aspect, God's judgment as a rational, a loving God, salvation that comes from him. So highlighting those three important themes throughout each of the Psalms that they encounter, you know, on an, whenever during their quiet time, you know, during church, any of those times. We are talking here specifically about the use of the word Selah, but if you want to focus specifically on the whole Psalter with the organization of the Psalms and the various types of parallel structures in the Psalms, you can enroll in Dr. Nicholas Shazer's course called the Hebrew Psalms. I'll put a link to it in the show notes of this episode. But let's get back to Selah. When I hear people mention the word, I always think of the Psalter. But interestingly, the word is also used by the prophet Habakkuk. I asked Dr. Lyon if she had a theory about why that one prophet uses Selah. That's a really good question. However, Habakkuk 3 is considered partially poetry. And so my just initial off-the-cuff reaction to that type of question would be, well, I mean, he was probably familiar with its use Maybe he didn't know exactly what it meant, but he knew it occurred in those types of contexts. And you do find it in the same context that you find it in the Psalms. And so highlighting, you know, sin, judgment, and salvation, those are all all likely things that I think it occurred with. Um, and so he probably used them to highlight, you know, important parts of his message as well. Another one of the things that you are interested in is archaeology, especially I think of Qumran, specifically of Qumran. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So has the, the studies that have happened at Qumran helped you in understanding poetry? I mean, archaeology is one thing, poetry we put in a different category, but have you found a way to link those together? Well, specifically in regard to Selah, yes. That was the most exciting thing that I had found because... You tell. Um, yes, it was, it was so interesting <laughs> because I, you know, when you're doing a PhD, they say you need to find something that's, you know, exciting and grabs the reader's attention. And that's what I found at Qumran um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves. And so you know that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered major archaeological discovery that has impacted biblical studies like no other um, before. And so um, there is a term, um, actually, it preserves a, uh, one of these scrolls preserves a use of Selah that is not in the Hebrew Bible in Psalm 91, which is in book four. So, yes, the mysterious um, book with no Selah. I know, right? And so um there was one that was found there that had preserved it in a similar context, um but that is not preserved in our, you know, Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia that we use today. 
And also there are other scrolls um, that use it in such a way that suggested it was an oral or a live term, that it was actually spoken. The terms vayaanu or the term vayaanu meaning um, and they said or and they answered uh, amen selah occur in some of the scrolls. And so seeing it as a live term also gives us another sense maybe that it was an affirmation of some sort after those particular themes as well. So still within this, the, the context of sin, judgment, and salvation, but that it was an oral affirmation. So I, I'm not sure which tradition it applies to, but you know, when you go to a church and and they have uh, the priest read one thing and then the congregation responds, I, I always forget what it's called. That's how I think of Selah, maybe in the Second Temple period or, or at Qumran, um, just in ancient times where it could have been an oral affirmation of something that is related to that type of theme or in that context. So that was really exciting. No one had ever written on that before. I was the first one, at least in my knowledge, and all the five years I spent doing my PhD <laughs> leafing through manuscripts nice. to write on that. So that was really, really exciting uh, find from the Judaizers. How did people think Selah, if it wasn't ever spoken, but it was in the midst of a psalm, what did people used to say prior to your brilliant realization using the Dead Sea Scrolls? Like, how would they have explained when an ancient audience came upon the word Selah, what they would have done with that? I do think that it probably didn't need an explanation because they knew what it meant. Sure. And then its meaning was lost over time. And then as the the Bible came down to us, we just eventually started ignoring it. And because of form criticism, we saw that maybe it was just an instruction that wasn't meant to be read. And so... If you happen to have gone to a church at any point in your life, you don't typically say Selah out loud. When it comes to the Psalms, you'll you'll hear people freeze and they're like, do I pronounce this word or do or do I, you know, keep silent? What is it? And so that was eventually just seen as a musical direction, but Qumran attests that it was a live term. And they answered by Anu, Amen, Amen Selah. Amen, Amen Selah. So they probably said it out loud. Um, and they knew what it meant. Um, so that's kind of what I gain from those type of studies. It's interesting when we, because there are some of those clues, we just don't know uh, how things went. And then we keep changing our mind. The more studies that we do, the more documents that we find, and we realize uh, the the fact that you are calling it a, a living or spoken word is, it's like you're bringing life back into something that was lost and even today, I encourage my students to read the Psalms and speak that word out loud. And, the, and I ask them, I say, well, what does this verse mean to you where it occurs? You know, everybody's interpretation is different because everybody has a different background. And it is it is valuable. The practicality of, you know, scripture is valuable um, in a number of different contexts for, you know, whatever people are going through in life. And so it can mean one thing to one person and one thing to another. Um, but I do think the value of speaking it out loud really kind of settles that idea of uh, there is sin, there is judgment, and there is salvation. And, you know, those things are concrete. We know that from the biblical text. You know, it might look slightly different for each person. So, Okay, I have another thing that I know that you're interested in. 
uh, which is either Jewish magic, or we could talk about Aramaic incantations or incantation bowls, which is also something you've written a couple articles for IBC uh, for the magazine. So people can find out more through some of your articles, but I'd love to ask you about those. The bowls in particular are very interesting. Within mainstream Judaism, you had people from all walks of life, just like you see today. You had those who were very orthodox that followed scriptural rules to the T. And then you had people that, you know, they believed, but they were a little off the beaten path. And um, that's where you would find these bowls with the people off the beaten path. The bowls were commissioned by individual families to be inscribed because normally these people, not to say that they were uneducated, but they normally didn't write. Um, they weren't trained in formal writing. And so they would commission a scribe to come out to their home and write these magical spells for protection of their home. They could have been for uh, a cure of some ailment or even just a general concern about someone in their family. They were inscribed on these clay bowls in um, spiral uh, writing, and they usually called on the name of the Lord um, in them, and they would cite scripture, and Selah has been used in the bowls as well. Uh, so I think the bowls are really neat. They would be uh, buried within floorboards of the houses, like thinking that, you know, the spirits would stay away from scripture and and uh, that their homes would be protected by God. So um uh, there is a very scriptural element to them that that interests me as well because magic and scripture don't seem to go hand in hand most times. And so I wanted to connect that for people to let them know that the people who wanted these things in their homes wanted the protection of God. They wanted him to look favorably upon their families and keep sickness, keep evil spirits away from them. And they thought that this was something that would help them. Just like some people only believe that prayer helps them, they believed that these bowls would give them extra protection by calling on the name of God. So just letting them know that magic and scripture can go hand in hand um, was something that also interests me. On those bowls, is there a pattern? Were there common incantations or common psalms even or common ones that were repeated like it was just normal to have this psalm or something like that repeated and written on a bowl yeah i mean there's there's definitely a general pattern just of the text itself it's usually starts off with the family's name like who it's commissioned for it tells about whatever their concern is next and then it has this the scriptural element at the end so you have passages from the Psalms that are used quite often, normally the ones that contain Selah. So one of the 71 occurrences, you know, of the term will usually appear in one of the bowls if they quote a Psalm. Deuteronomy is a uh, often yes! cited book. Yes, I know one of your favorites. And the book of Isaiah as well. So those are three books that were commonly used um, as a scriptural point. Within Which then the isn't really all that surprising because even within Qumran, the Psalms, Isaiah and Deuteronomy are quoted the most often. So it's not surprising that they would be found frequently in the bowls as well. Yeah. The thing that's interesting about the bowls is um, I didn't notice it until the end of my studies, but I was trying to figure out why there were these little boxes 
around the name of God and Selah together for some reason. Are you familiar with um, Egyptian hieroglyphs at all? So do you know what a cartouche is yeah. then? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, the, you know, the cartouche had usually the person's name, king, queen, whoever's name and the box around it. Well, that's a similar concept that we find in the bowls. And God's name was part of this cartouche, this like Jewish cartouche that contained the name of God and Selah. So I would really love to see someone look into that at some point, why that was even done. Um, is there extra importance to it? Or, you know, were they familiar with something going on in another language another time? Um, so, yeah, that was also interesting as well. So any of our listeners that are looking for PhD dissertation subjects, just make sure you footnote Dr. Lyon here. <laughs> yes, please do. Please do. Um, that, would, that would be great. There, <laughs> there can be a lot of studies that come out of, of Hebrew poetry in general, especially as it relates to archaeology or these more obscure subjects. Because the more that we see the connections with other types of things, like even Jewish magic, like I was previously talking about, and the Bible, you see that it's not all bad. We have a tendency to think things are tab certain things are taboo, certain topics are taboo, but in reality, they actually go hand in hand. And so I'd love to see more studies that come out of that. So speaking of new studies... People who are familiar with IBC and are in the IBC community have seen you regularly publishing through the magazine. But I happen to know that you are working on a course. Yes. So can you give the listeners of the podcast a preview as to what that course is going to be called and what type of content will be in it? Yes, I would love to actually. So my hope is that the course will be available sometime in 2022. It will be an introduction to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, um, that's yeah, no. so fun. We are really excited about this um, because we don't currently have a course on that, as you know. And so basically what I will be doing in the course is talking about a, a, an introduction how they were found, where they were discovered, talking about um, their trade up until their publication. We'll talk about dating um, analysis of the scrolls. We'll even talk about authorial intent um, at some points within them. Um, and there will be a lot of other um, subsets that we cover that are, I would say, probably more on the academic end um, as it gets toward the end of the course. But I think it's really good for anybody. Um, just understand their importance. Why Why were they written? What were they used for? And to get people excited about just biblical history in general. And I always think it's important to know, you know, where the texts came from, how they were found, even the reliability of scripture, what I talk about with the Dead Sea Scrolls, because it talks about the, the transmission of the text. Um, well, I talk about the transmission of the text and its faithful faithfulness throughout millennia. Um, and so that's really important um, to see there as well. So everyone here on the podcast gets to have a little preview, but now we have to exercise patience as we wait <laughs> for it to happen. Yes, yes. Please be patient. Um, it is coming though, I promise. I promise. Yes. Yeah. There's actually a few courses, I think, that are in the pipeline. So um, it, it it is fun because I think at the end of the year and beginning of next year, there's some really interesting new things that are coming out. 
so, well, thank you for your time. I'm excited that you're part of the IBC team and that I get to interview you. Thank you for coming onto the podcast with me. Yes. It's, it's very fun to hear about your published work and then the work that is coming out soon with IBC. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I really look forward to all of our courses that we're going to be developing too. Dr. Lyon is part of this impressive team at IBC. And if you want to join a whole online community that is taking a new look at the Bible, you are most welcome to join us at israelbiblecenter.com. We have a large collection of courses that you can combine together to earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 